All episodes of the Garage Build Podcast are recorded live in the Law Fran Studios. The law offices of Fran Hosh, Palm Harbor, Florida. Call 1-866-LAW-FRAN or go to lawfran.com. The law offices of Fran Hosh, serving the Tampa Bay biker community for over 20 years. Welcome back to the Garage Bill Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Hallman. Hey, this is episode 85 with my good buddy, Cody Childress. It's been a minute since he's been on the podcast, and uh, we wanted to talk about the new F- the FTC, Federal Trade Commission ruling that uh, was put out for Harley-Davidson, kind of got their hand slapped a little bit. We're going to talk about that, talk about a couple other things. Sturgis is coming up real soon. Cody and I are going to be out there uh, at the FXR show on the first Sunday, uh, the hardcore show. We've got our performance show, the Little Evil performance show that Tuesday, Wednesday, the Perowitz paint show. Then there's the Evo entanglement at the Buffalo chip. That's going to be Thursday. And then uh, Friday, we might get the hell out of there. We'll leave a little early. So, hey, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by SNS Cycles. Since 1958, SNS has led the V twin aftermarket. From innovative new ways to get air and fuel into your performance twin to big bore kits for all big twins, sportsters, and MAs to today's must have exhaust components, choose SNS Cycles for your next performance upgrade. Visit sscycle.com and follow SNS Cycles on social media. Team Dream Rides is located in Maryville, Tennessee, and is only minutes from the tail of the dragon. Dream Rides specializes in performance, engine upgrades, used bike sales, service, maintenance, and repair. Visit John and his team at Team Dream Rides Tennessee and follow them on Instagram at Dream Rides Tennessee to see all the latest builds coming out of there. The High Seas Rally is setting sail this October 29th through November 5th, and my ass will be on that. I hope you can join me. It's one week, 3,500 bikers in four Caribbean ports. Follow at High Seas Rally on Instagram and use the code SPEEDMETAL when you book, and I'm going to give you a $100 discount on your cabin, and this year we're throwing in the drink card, so it's going to be a good party. Electric lighting features top-shelf LEDs backed by 30 years of cutting-edge industry-leading manufacturing and the best warranty in the marketplace. Use the code SPEED2022 for free shipping in the US 48 on all orders over 50 bucks at namscustomcycleproducts.com. And as always, I'm wearing 1620 premium made in the USA workwear guaranteed for life. Visit at 1620USA on Instagram and use the code SPEED2022 to save 20% off on check-in or check-out rather. I give you episode 85 of the Garageville Podcast. You're listening to the Garageville Podcast with your host, Jason Holman. Mike's a little hot. <laughs> What's that? No, there we go. I got good audio now. I couldn't get I couldn't get two okay. channels on there. I don't know what was going on with it. So this board is like uh it's it's this board is like it does some pro stuff, but it's fucking it uh it's almost too simple. It's kinda like an iPhone. Like if you don't know how to use an iPhone, it seems really difficult until you learn to use an iPhone and you realize it's it's pretty much idiot proof. So oh, right on. No, so to answer your question, the reason why I didn't stay in radio was because of Karen. I, her parents wouldn't let me see her. I lived three hours away, 
and I was just I wasn't ready for it, man. It was like a ma maturity thing. I didn't have I didn't have a personality then that I thought was. Um, uh, first off, I was fucking nineteen years old, and I, everything that I said was I was being an idiot. You know what I mean? Like there was nothing there was nothing special about anything I was saying. <laughs> you know. Well, I, I, mean, I, I think that's how people like Howard Stern got started. Yeah. No, he definitely was. He definitely was. Because, you know, a lot of, I mean, everybody knows, I think, but, you know, he was a radio disc jockey in Detroit for a while. Right. He was on W4 Country, 106.7 FM. And so, and then it changed to, uh, it was, it was, W4 was a rock station. And then in like 79 or 80, I think it went to, um, it went to a country station. I only remember that because my parents, it was such a big deal for my parents because they, my parents hate country music, like hate it. Like, hate it, hate it. Like, if I put country music on, my dad was pretty much, my dad, here's the funny thing about my dad. My dad was like a big culture club fan. Like, he, he thought Boy George music was the was the bee's knees. And I, if yeah. you put country on, uh, he was like, yeah, you can turn that off. Like, he would, if we had it on in the shop, because we started listening to it down here in Florida, we'd have it in the shop, he would come on back, and he'd be like, what's this goat rope and bullshit? I'm like, okay. <laughs> Like it's, uh, that sounds like my dad. My dad was that way. He he hated country music early on in life, and then as he got older, he I think he found a little bit of an appreciation for it. So. Yeah, I, I that's the same thing with me. I mean, truth be told, we're not kids anymore. You know, when I think back on what my dad was like at forty nine years old, um, I'm 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 quite a bit different than what my dad was at. 49 years old, but I've learned to appreciate things that I didn't appreciate when I wasn't 49 now that I am 49, if that makes any sense to you at all. <laughs> so, uh, it's been a while since you and I have podcasted, and one of the things that initiated this, yesterday you texted me, you're like, or you were telling me on the phone, actually, that you read a post by John Jessup, and he was talking about Harley Davidson kind of being in a little bit of hot water, and that is something that we you and i have talked about forever in a day and then now that it's it's ma it's mainstream i think the conversation is going to happen quite a bit more oh, I, I, uh, I hope it does i hope it continues to be talked about more and i hope there's there's some more light shed on it i mean isn't it so they've gotten away yeah they've gotten away with it for a very long time but this so this is so basically, the the news headlines. If you if you read the news headlinings, I, I just typed in Harley Davidson uh, warranty news, right? And it says federal regulators accuse Harley Davidson and Westinghouse of illegal warranty terms. I don't know what the tie-in is or with Westinghouse, but I can tell you. So the 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 bureau that investigates this type of stuff is the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC. The FTC has been involved in lots of different things over the years. Um, one of the one of the things that I've talked about before on the podcast a long, long time ago was when I sold cars in Michigan, it's illegal to sell a car as a dealer in Michigan on a Sunday, unless you are uh, a Jew. And that's, that's, that's like a, a, a real law. Uh, and the reason why they do that is because the Sabbath is on Saturdays, right? So, but if you sell cars on Sunday, you can't be open on Saturday. And that all stems yeah, from what's that? It's the same we have the Texas blue law is what it's called in Texas to where you can't sell automobiles on Sunday unless you're closed on Saturday. So that law, so that part of that law, I remember when I was in, when, when I was a kid and we moved to Texas, I remember the blue laws being a big deal because my dad couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays. 
That's the only thing I remember about that. Now, I, I may be completely wrong, but that seems to be what I remember. Is that was that was that the case? And is that you the can't case? Buy now? Lick, you can't buy lick. You can't buy liquor on Sundays. No. In anywhere in so, Texas? No. What about if you go to a bar and they're serving it? Yes. Okay. Yes, you just can't go. Which is so stupid that you can't can't go to the liquor store and purchase it on Sunday, but you can go to the bar and get fuck faced on Sunday. <laughs> So in Michigan, go, well, I was going to say in Michigan, the way that I learned about the Federal Trade Commission was when I started selling cars in Michigan, you, we, it was a five-day operation. It was Monday through Friday, and this was in 1995, and no dealers were open on Saturdays at this point in time. And you had Monday night was late, Thursday night was late. So if you once you got a job selling cars, you were open, you worked from uh, basically 9 to 9 Monday nine to six on Tuesday, Wednesday, nine to nine Thursday, and nine to six on Friday. And then they started, uh, they started introducing the Saturdays here and there with the suburban dealers, but I'll get to that in a minute, but cause it's, it, that's really not even worth talking about in the conversation. But the last dealership that I worked for was Jack Demmer Ford. And, um, in 1971, I believe it was, um, the federal trade commission found that it was, uh, that the dealership, the the National Auto Dealers Association, the Detroit Auto Dealers Association, one of the two, the they were colluding to corner the market and not be open on Saturdays or Sundays. And so in doing so, they were preventing people from being able to buy cars. And so the compromise, so the compromise ended up being Monday and Thursday nights late, no Saturdays. But to get there, uh, the dealerships, um, the sales department unionized when the sales department in Detroit unionized, they walk off the job. Dealers had scab workers come in and be salespeople. And the, the dealership that I worked for was firebombed by the union, uh, in 1971. Oh, wow. Yeah. And when I was working there in 19 or 2000, I was there in 2003, there was still one salesman left over that was a scab in 1971. His name is Dick Wickert. He's still alive now. He lives up in uh, like Bangor, Maine or something. He owns a bed and breakfast. He's, he's a miserable human being. He was a, he was a Catholic priest and his wife was a Catholic nun. And uh, they had that and got caught with their, with their hands in each other's cookie jar and got kicked out of the, out of the, out of the church. But they, uh, they ended up, they ended up having a bed and breakfast, but so the federal trade commission, they come in and they find, you know, they obviously get complaints and things like that. And so when they get a complaint, uh, they have to follow up on it. Just like any federal bureau has to, you have to at least follow up on the complaint. So, uh, it's kind of a big deal. Um, so the, the, the law that they're violating is the Magnuson Moss act. And you and I talked a little bit about that. Um, a little bit about that yesterday. And we've talked about that a lot in the past that, you know, as independent shop owners, and I know you're, you're not, your shop isn't open to the public right now, but when you had bad company customs, it was open to the public. Whoville Speed and Custom was open to the public through appointments um, not that long ago when, when the, the Orange Bike was built the first time. Um, this is a big deal because we were kind of stonewalled as independent shops. We were stonewalled out of a lot of stuff. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I don't. I'm not going to say that Harley Davidson wouldn't have survived if it wasn't for aftermarket shops, because I will they probably. They probably could have survived, but they wouldn't be. 
I don't think they would be what they are today without the aftermarket shops. There's I mean, no really way that they could be. They've been, in, they've been in financial trouble so many times that I don't I don't know that they could have withstood the storm had it not been for your aftermarket shops. I mean, you know, uh, I can't remember the name, like AAE Choppers and Arlenness and Randy Smith at Cycle at Custom Cycle Engineering, Arlen Ness, Donnie Smith, yeah. Dave Perowitz, guys that that rode the Storm Mountain and are still doing it. Uh, I know Arlen's Arlen's since passed, but his son and grandsons are doing it. You know, they've sure. subsidized piss poor engineering that was let out into the into the general public. They've made things cool. They built a culture around a company that right now it doesn't have anybody inside of it, in my opinion, that I've met that is is part of it. You know what I mean? Part of the culture, I mean, anyway. I'll say, I feel like the aftermarket, the aftermarket V-twin industry saved Harley Davidson. I mean, I, I'll say that. I mean, but had it not been for those guys, uh, especially the custom world of of Harley Davidson and V-twins, would not exist without those guys. I mean, and I don't. I don't know how to put it into the right the right words about as well versed, but I mean I, I think without the aftermarket Harley wouldn't be where it's at today. And without those guys like you talked about, Harlan and Dave and Donnie and I mean, we wouldn't be here. I mean Well and, and Harley will give no credit to any I mean they're starting to slowly give I don't know if they're giving credit or if or or if they are They're providing low level opportunities. Good. I would say they're providing yes, low-level opportunities, but nothing, nothing big. Well, no, I think they're starting to figure out that if they don't get the support of the aftermarket community, I mean, I mean, would anybody ride a Harley if it wasn't for the aftermarket parts availability? Really? No. I mean, I, mean, I know there's, I know there's the hog group, and and you have guys that do do like it, but I mean, without the ability to do what you can do to one of these bikes. You think we'd all be rolling around on custom Hondas or, or custom Yamahas or Suzuki's? No. I mean, I, I say that. I don't know. I mean, I don't. I guess if my dad would have, if that would have, if that's what he would have been customizing and riding around, raising hell on, maybe that's what I would have thought was cool. But, I mean, well, I, I just don't think it would have been. That's. I don't know. I don't well, so it. those things are, our, but but are your dad and my dad riding old bikes? Those bikes were already built. So that make those bikes even more valuable today, but um, uh, you have to decide. So they hold their- you have to decide what you're going to do. So my bike shop is not going to make money off of clothing, but Harley dealer. That's where they. That's where they seem to make most of their money. Well, for a long time they've been saying that you know Harley dealerships weren't motorcycle shops they were uh i've said for years that harley davidson is less of a motorcycle company they're they're a company that builds unfinished motorcycles uh they're a t-shirt company that builds unfinished motorcycles because you know the the aftermarket has to has to fix all the bullshit and make them cooler and you know and then now they try to sell bikes that are completely done and then they want to invalidate someone's warranty i mean come on well and they're and harley's i think harley's copied other people for a long time without giving anybody any credit. I mean, right now that that new bike that just came out the the, the ST looking thing. 
uh, soft tail ST. Yeah, with the, yes, with the fairing. Yeah. In the bags, man, they they would have never produced that bike. They would have not from they would have not produced that bike had it not been for the after I mean the the FXR market, the Dyna market, the, the even the bagger market. I mean, the market industry Harley would have not produced that model. That they wouldn't have. I mean, anything they could produce that was production cost to where they could sell a whole bunch of them and it wasn't about quality i mean and and i think with the in the last five years with the resurgence i don't even know if you want to call it a resurgence of the fxr because i don't know that it ever really no way for the fxr purist but for i mean i'm not i don't tell anybody that i was a i've always been an fxr fan and i was a fxr guru that, that's not true i i got I bought an FXR in 2010, I believe. And I never owned. So it wasn't like I've been this diehard FXR guy. But as the FXR resurgence came around, people started to to do all the cool stuff they were doing. And, and the fairing models, you know, RTs and RPs were so hot. I mean, yeah, that, I think that, that if you look at a, the swing of a pendulum, but if you look at the swing of a pendulum, that pendulum keeps swinging. And, you know, for the last five years or so, the, the, the FXRs have been, you know, at the forefront of that swing. And I think it's going to swing the other way again. I think, you know, it's the same thing that's going to happen as people, people are going to buy them. There's going to be, there's going to be a surplus of them. The prices are going to come down. People are going to buy them. Some of the wrong people are going to own them that they realize that you've got to work on them a little bit more than anything. And so they're going to get less popular, but, and a lot of people cycle in and out of this as a hobby. Um, I think that I will say that I think um, in the last five years, Harley has built an infinitely better motorcycle than what they built the five years previous. I think from 2017, if you go back to 2012 and look at a 2012 road, road glide compared to a 2017 road glide, I think you have an infinitely better motorcycle in 2017. The M8 is is very capable of making a lot of power. It's it's very powerful and it's it's standard configuration. Uh, the electronics seem to be less problematic. Now, I, I have heard some things recently about some of the newer stuff, but, and you can't argue with the monoshock thing either. Those soft tails are really nice motorcycles. They ride good. It makes sense. They look cool. I mean, you know, even though, even a standard low rider looks pretty rad. No, no doubt. I want, I want one of the low rider STs. I mean, I, I'm, I want to pull the trigger on one so bad, but uh, my wife would uh, she'd lose her lose her mind if I went and bought one in the middle of this project. I got right. Well, there's enough things going on and um, in your world that that there's no reason to there's no reason to try to overcomplicate things. But and I want to see one in person too. I mean, we're going to see plenty of them here in a few weeks when we're in Sturgis. I mean, they're, they're going to be all over the place. Uh, buddy of mine, Tim Holly just bought one. I know Jeff G's got one, so we'll, we'll probably see his too. I would imagine he'll have, he'll have that there, but I mean, all in all, I, I it, away from the product line, if you look, if you look at the product line from a thousand feet back and you go back to some of the earlier podcasts that you and I did, I think the one we did with Jeff G back four years ago, you and I talk about vehicle complexity across the models why why do they have so many fucking bikes why do they have so many different variations why don't they just 
minimalize it a little bit. And they've done that. I mean, they didn't listen to us, obviously, but it, it's just par- a parallel thinking where you have a road glide, a street glide. You know, you've got the road glide special, the street glide special. You've got a standard still, which has no radio in it, which is, I think it's kind of a cool bike. I don't count any of the police stuff in there because that's like built specifically for municipal use. And I think, I think if you drilled down on that, that has something to do with cafe credits or something. You know what I mean? Right. And so, and you've got ultras on both ends. I, if I was the CEO of Harley Davidson, I would eliminate all but one CBO right now. Like I would only offer the ST in a CVO. I wouldn't offer an, a CVO ultra. I would focus my ultra, my ultra, uh, stuff at the triglides, which dude, it's kind of, I can't believe how many trikes are around now. Like that's a big part of the, that's a big part of the segment of the marketplace. And I have a lot of customers that aren't boomers that are riding them. I mean, they're borderline, you know, dudes that are 10 years older than us that aren't, aren't, they're not baby boomers really. You know, they're just out of that, out of that, that era, but that they're, they're riding them now and they're in their, you know, they're in their late fifties, early sixties. Um, you know, I don't see a lot of trikes around here. They were really hot for a minute. Mm-hmm. And then I bet you, I haven't seen a trike on the road in the city I live in. In how long? I mean, I, I, I mean, I probably see one every six months, maybe. I mean, I just don't. Oh wow! I don't see them. No, I see three or four a day here. Yeah, see, I'm not seeing them. And a matter of fact, the dealership. I mean, I, I frequent the dealership here quite a bit just because I'm friends with them. But right, they don't even have. I think they have one trike right now. I mean, they. And I don't know if it was price. I don't know if it was. You know, Abilene's uh, a weird marketplace, though. Abilene's very much like a Columbus, Ohio, like a but a, a kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Like it to me, it's it's a good uh, canary in the coal mine town. And you guys are really good about things that things that Texans are really good about, and especially people from Abilene are very good at going. You know what? We're good. Fuck off. You know, you guys like you guys won't let a Hooters come to Abilene. You know what I mean? Like. Well. That's fucking stupid. I won't even. No, I don't but, even want to talk about. It. Well, but you we know what I'm saying. Now, so. Oh, you do. Okay, but Just for a while so. it took a oh, while, yeah. right? It yeah. took a while, didn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what I'm saying is, you're very good at taking your bat and ball and going home and being okay with what you guys have, and you guys are very self sufficient. That's something that I've always loved about Abilene, Texas. Was that every time I go there, I'm like, I could find everything that I need here, and I mean that. Like everything I need, if if it's not in Abilene, I don't need it. Like legit. You guys have exactly what you need there, and so that that's 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 very charming. But it's it doesn't lend itself sometimes to uh, a worldly view of, of what's going on in in some of the other areas. And I guess the trike thing would be a good example of that. You know, I mean, yeah, I don't even know what to say. I mean, I'm I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it doesn't have anything. I'm like motherfucker, <laughs> can't find one. One bolt that I need, but I'm uh, talking about need though versus want. Like, so that that's kind of yeah. what I mean by that. Like, so the trike thing is popular here. Um, the pipe thing, the pipe, uh, the trike thing is popular in probably in the Midwest. It's probably huge, right? But it's just not so not so big there. But getting back to, so the, did they go did ahead. They get away from making a trike? Is the trike no. being made? No, they're making it. No, they're okay. making they make two so they different are, kinds okay. now. They make a freewheeler, which okay. is based off of a Road King. 
And then they make the tri-glide that is based off the Ultra. And I'm really surprised that they didn't do a road glide trike instead of a street glide, instead of a batwing fairing. But getting getting back to the original piece, so I'll tell you something that happened a few years ago. I have a friend named Jason Vespi uh, that used to be the parts guy at Lakeland when the old owners had it, before the, the current owners. And he was telling me that he was with a customer at the counter that was buying a brand new bike, and there was a Harley factory representative there at the counter kind of just checking on things, kind of there for the day, you know, checking out the service department, checking out the sales department, checking out the parts department. And he was working on, I don't know what this is. Maybe, you know, this, what they would call a quote unquote stage four kit. Do you know what that is? I think it's like heads, cams, big bore kind of thing, right? No. Yeah. But you know how they, you know, they stage things though, right? I do not. So, well, I'm saying you, you're, if someone says a stage one, you know, Harley sells a stage one. If someone says a stage two, you know, Harley sells a stage two, right? Okay, so I guess there was a stage four kit, and this guy was looking at purchasing it, and Jason was working pretty hard with the guy to try to close the deal. And the guy from the factory, and I'm not making this up, this is something that Jason told me, the guy from the factory looked over at the customer and said, if you have that install, if you buy that and have and install that on a brand new motorcycle, even if it's done here, we have to invalidate your warranty. And so the guy didn't buy it, and it was like a three or $4,000 upsell in parts department, which doesn't make doesn't make any sense to me that you would that you would compromise that but this is you know i don't know if that's where that came from but ultimately my friend the story was my friend was telling me that he didn't get to make the sale because this guy this guy had said this and so this federal trade commission thing basically it's um the way the law works and, and i know i know about the magnuson moss act it was signed into in law in 1975 Okay, so there's a couple pieces of it. There's components to be picked out. There's something called a tied-in sales provision, right? A, a tied-in sales provision is saying that you have to use Harley-Davidson oil. Uh, you have to um, use Harley-Davidson tires, right? Which that's not that's not right. There's some other pieces here that I'm not sure. I've got to do some. I've got to do some due diligence. But so let's say you buy a bike at the dealership and your deductible is, you're out of the factory two year, and your extended warranty, Harley has a $50 deductible if you go back to them, and a $100 deductible if you go to a shop like mine. Well, automatically right there, you are, you're, you're creating a tied in sales provision where they're forced to come back, and legally the only repair that you can require a customer to come back to a franchise dealership or factory dealership is if they have a hundred percent of parts and labor paid paid for well so if there's a deductible then that negates that provision that's in the contract or in the law rather right so like a recall they pay a hundred percent of parts and labor on during the factory two year if you have an engine failure or a transmission failure or a driveline failure, Harley covers that under the factory warranty with zero deductible. Well, here's the caveat. Guys like you and me, you know, we'll go buy a, a, a Baker, dry, a Baker uh, transmission and put a Baker trans in there. And then if something happens to the customer's radio, Harley's invalidating the radio warranty because somebody put a Baker trans in it. Or Harley's invalidating the radio warranty because there's a Thundermax in it. And there's obviously some gray area and then there's obviously some some 
real identifying things. If a guy puts, um, if you put a big bore kit on it at, at Cycle Stop USA or at Whoville Speed and Custom, and you have an engine failure, well, the engine's no longer covered. But that doesn't mean if the blinkers stop working that they can invalidate your warranty. And that's the kind of stuff they're doing. You know what I mean? Right. No, no, absolutely. I mean, it's bullshit. Well, and they're, they're getting they're getting caught. And if you remember, do you remember back when we both got into the business and you would buy, you would build a custom motorcycle, right? And you would buy, you know, you'd buy a frame from Aaron, you'd buy an engine from SNS, you'd buy a trans from Prowler, uh, you'd buy a tech cycle belt drive or a Primo belt drive. You'd put all this stuff together, you'd go to the DMV, you'd show them your MSOs and all that stuff. And you'd, you'd have a bike that had, um, they call it in Florida, an ASPT uh, assembled from parts title. I don't know what they call it in Texas, but every state's a little bit different because states' rights trump federal rights on things like this. And so, you know, Harley went and complained and complained and complained. And then you could buy it with a kit bike. Do you remember that? Yes. You could do like a custom chrome kit bike, like the hardcore two chopper was, uh, you know, six up, four out frame or four up, six out. I don't remember which one, four out, six up, uh, 200 rear tire. You could have your choice of engine. You had your choice of some other stuff in there and you would have you, that bike would be, everything would be in that box, but you still had the same MSOs. You had to go through whatever your local municipality or state mandated law was or how you would get that bike registered. Um, Harley complained and complained and complained, right? And then the federal, the federal, um, I don't know if it was the FTC or what, but the, somebody in the federal government, the, Fed, the Department of Transportation or somebody said, okay, so now you can only do that once in your lifetime. They created a federal law. Do you remember that? Did that actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. that actually. It went through, but the state, yeah. And then the states were like, we're not enforcing that. That's not our law. We don't have, we don't have the way to enforce it. You know, so you run into these 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 pissing contests where, you know, Harley created an, another problem. So um, the cylinder heads on so twin cams are eighty eight cubic inches, right? Well, almost everybody when you picked up your twin cam from the dealership, you went ahead and put a ninety five inch kit on it. Now this is this is just hearsay, so I don't know how true this is, but this it it falls in line. The behavior pattern is there as a company from Harley that. You would buy your bike, they would take it to service, they would put a 95-inch kit on it, because I was told that the cylinder heads and everything were developed to be optimized for a 95-inch, but they couldn't pass Department of Transportation and EPA emissions or whatever through, uh, uh, what is it, noise, uh, NV, NVH, noise, vibration, and harshness test uh there's the decibel test and all those things that the the engines the 88s they had to they had to basically down tune detune the bike by making the engine smaller to, to fit all of the to fit all the requirements put forth by the federal government the epa and so you have all these things going on where harley's pointing the finger at everybody complaining about sns having selling crate evos complaining about sns selling crate twin cams complaining about you know ultima and powerhouse and back at the time i mean think about it 20 years ago cody where you could get a Jim's engine you get an sns engine you get an ultima engine a RevTech engine a merch engine uh, Patrick engine, a total a TP total performance engine, powerhouse from Mid USA. Um, who am I missing? There was there was there had to be there had to be a couple more, right? 
so you, but that's eight engine manufacturers right there that all essentially manufactured what would be their version of of a Harley engine. So there's like this intellectual property thing going on. And that, that's the, to me, that's the anecdotal evidence about what you were saying earlier about how Harley Davidson has relied on the aftermarket to, to prop them up. Absolutely. I mean, and, and I don't, I don't know enough about the intellectual property stuff to, to really speak on it. And I mean, I, I do know when the twin came out, the twin cam came out that the Evo didn't go away, but the aftermarket availability, uh, I mean, SNS is still in business. I think, yeah. I think TP may be building some motors, but they are. I mean, you basically saw all the, e the Evo stuff go away as far as aftermarket. Uh, and I don't know if that's because of, I mean, why did, uh, why did those companies not build twin cam engines? I mean, what was the, was it because of Harley and, and the intellectual property or, I mean, how could they build Evos? I mean, could they, could they not replicate millet cases or, uh, even cast aluminum cases for the twin cam or, well, I mean, or did people just decide that it was easier to use the factory? Well, first off, the, so the factory uh, cases, the, the, the later Evos were problematic. The, the uh they would pull the studs out of the block right they had some cracking problems in between for a few years there in between the lifter blocks but they found out that the twin cam engine cases were really strong you go to 124 inches in them and they would live but even now like uh so sns you can if you buy an sns twin cam you're getting an sns cast block and dude ultima has a twin cam replacement engine now that's all it's all ultima so it, you know, well, but I mean, it's, the it's Evo taking a while to get there. It did, but it took, listen, look at it this way. The, the, the twin cam was introduced in 99 in the Dyna for whatever reason, they, they use that in the, in the dresser as the, as the launch, uh, for their new engine, which they did again in 06, uh, with the Dyna. But so from 2000 to 2010, that was really the first 10 years that you and I were around this business. That's how long it took for the, the Evos to really cycle out of production for everybody. I mean, they're still, they're still in production, but back in the day, you could get from SNS, you'd get an 80 inch Evo, a 96 inch Evo. For a minute, there was a 100 inch Evo. Then there was the 107. That's what Aaron put in his production bikes, most of them. Then there was the uh, one, 111, 113, 117, 124. Then there was the 145 tribute motor, right? So that's that's nine different engine configurations. And now through uh, SNS, I believe you can get a 96, a 113, and a 111, and a 124. So there's four. So they cut that in half. And in a twin cam, you go from, uh, they have a 111 and a 124. If you're gonna have one, from them and then there's the 143 is out now so you know i mean there's there's okay. there's but but what i'm getting at is that i think that the twin cam it took 10 years right so now we're here we're 10 years in and you have other companies copying other companies and what i mean by that is you have sns came out with their own proprietary case their own proprietary cylinders their own proprietary heads all of those pieces and parts that make up 
an engine that's arguably, a, I mean, we, we sell a fair amount of uh, crate engines here for twin cam replacement because by the time you do, by the time you do a full engine rebuild, dude, you're five, 6,000 bucks for another two grand. You can just put something that's all brand new stuff, you know, brand new cases, brand new crank, brand new rods. You know what I mean? And it, it, it's, it's oh, SMS has, actually has a case for the late model twin cam. Yeah. They've got them for uh, early and late. Uh, so if okay, you, see, I didn't know they had the late with, with the internal oil lines. I didn't know they had a. Yeah. So well, with the clock, with the clock gasket. So if you factor that in, you have you're back up to eight different part numbers, right? Because you're one eleven, one twenty four, one forty three. Um, you have high and low compression versions of of pretty much all of those. So you're three, six, you're you're six or eight part numbers away, and then polished, not polished, all that shit. But I mean, you know. Um, that's, uh, I wonder why they don't do that though. Like when Harley comes out with the twin cam, twin cam, why do they wait a number of years to get that, to get those cases of those engines ready? Like the, the, the M8s out now, does SNS have a case for M8s? No, because right now you can go, I mean, there's dudes making well over 200 horsepower with, with power adders and almost 200 horsepower. Uh, naturally aspirated with those things, I you know, they're 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 quite that's quite a venerable power plant. Okay, well, I mean that, that was my question is why yeah. is it is it a there's just not a need for it yet? Not yet, but you I'll tell you what you there you, you know, know you Harley, Harley will phase out Harley will phase out their I mean you used to be able to buy a crate Evo then you used to be able to buy a crate Twin Cam and then you used to be able to buy Heads and you used to be able to buy they've gone away from being a lot of of being able to buy a lot of that stuff. You can't go in and buy a crate, um, you know, 131 um, or a, a crate twin cam 131. I think they, they do away with a lot of those part numbers. And, well, see, so isn't your um, biggest, your biggest Harley twin cam is a 120 and then they have the street and the R, right? Uh, one, one, was it a 120 R? Yeah, they have a 120 ST and the 120 R. Because remember, okay. you looked at buying one for the orange bike for a minute, and then you you ended up with uh, you ended up giving Reggie Reggie a call, and right. you got a one twenty four from Reggie. But even that that bike that bike had stock Harley cases on it, if you remember. Yes, it had R and R uses stock Harley cases for their twin cam builds. Yep, it had R and R heads and jugs. The block was stock Harley. The crank was either a dark horse or R and R. I don't know. I don't know who does who does their crank. Do they do their own? Okay, I'm not surprised, but you know, um, but getting back to the, to the warranty thing, it's like this is. I think this is <laughs> this is poor timing for this, and and let me explain to you why. Harley Day, Harley Davidson closed a hundred dealers last year. The rumor is we're going to see that type of attrition over the next three three years. That's the rumor. There's no, that's, I'm, I'm putting that out based on the fact that that's the circles that I have conversations in with people that have been right about other things before. That's the number that we're looking at you know, attrition of a hundred dealers a year for the, for the next few years. They've, they've lessened the amount of vehicle complexity as far as how many, how many units or how many uh, models they have. Uh, York plant is idle to my knowledge, idle right now, still due to a lack of being able to get, you know, chips and things like that. So they're not, I mean, it's, 
the the CEO is not a biker, right? It's a business guy. So business guys all do the same thing. If you if you've ever invited a business guy into your business that doesn't care about what your business does, they just care that your business makes money. There's zero passion for what you do in that. I mean, it's a, it's such a clinical, it's such a clinical um, transaction. It's such a clinical way of doing things. It's such a clinical way of looking at um, business. It's not, <laughs> it's it's not something that you're like overly, uh, overly excited to to be in the room with that person because they're not enthusiastic about your business. You understand what right. I'm saying? Like I should have, for all for all intents and purposes, I should have went out of business ten times over the last ten years. So that's once a year, you know, for one reason or another. But I don't want to work for somebody else. I don't want to be told what to do. I don't want to be. I want to be able to stop in the middle of my workday when when the opportunity presents itself and and podcast. I want to be able to go to lunch at one thirty because I'm still working uh, at twelve forty five. You know what I mean? Like it, it's the level of freedom yeah. that I would give up is, is not something that I'm willing to, I'm not willing to part with that. I understand that completely. Probably more than most people know. You know what I mean? You probably understand that more than most people that I talk to. <laughs> I, I do 100%. Yeah. That's probably the understatement of, of the day. <laughs> so we've talked, we've talked so many times about like, what, what do you do to fix it? What do you do to, I, I don't I don't think there's a fix. I think this is uh, a result of many different things. What's your take? What is your take on what the problem is? Just give me a short answer on what the problem is and a short answer on what you think the solution would be. I don't know if I have any short answers, but I think Harley is out of touch with their customer base. Uh, I think they're going to have to close a bunch of dealerships. Uh, I think the price of the bikes have gotten, I mean, 50 grand for a CVO road glide, I think is bananas. Um, I mean, I know it's not quite 50, but if you want to add a big board kit or a, a stereo upgrade or whatever, you can get, you can be 50 plus out the door. But mm -hmm. I, I think too, with the aftermarket, I think used bike sales are up way more than new bike sales. And that's just pure speculation. I have no facts, no I haven't looked at any numbers, but I think people are learning to work on their own bike more because they don't want to deal with dealership bullshit. Uh, you're always going to have the guy that buys the bike, go, let's the dealership work on it. We'll only use Harley oil, only going to run Harley grips, only Harley tires. He's going to have a Harley do-rag, Harley chaps, Harley jacket. Harley, I mean, he's going to full-on Harley everything. But I think you're seeing a lot of people that want to work on their own bike, so they're going to buy a used bike because they don't, they don't really care about the dealership experience because I don't think it's there. Like I say, I don't think Harley cares about, I don't think Harley cares about anything but the bottom dollar, which as a business is understandable. But I think to be successful in business, you have to provide a, a customer service experience. And I just don't think it's there at the dealership anymore. Um, as somebody, as somebody that, that, that actually engages in the stock market on a pretty regular basis, Tell me what your your viewpoint is on on trading in Harley stock. Uh, I've and, never and, and quantify that. that and quantify the answer. Whatever the answer is, quantify that. You know, meaning, tell me why. I don't even look at Harley stock. 
It's not even a stock that I. The only, the first time I looked at Harley stock, as far as thinking about trading it, was yesterday when I read the news about uh, the Maximoss Act and the regulations. Uh, I was, I had actually planned on taking a position in Harley stock to the downside, but uh, I, I just, it's not, it's not a stock that I've looked at. It just doesn't. I don't know, maybe because I, I I love the aftermarket industry, and I guess I should be thankful for Harley that they produced a motorcycle that has an aftermarket industry, but as far as just the Harley, I am not pro Harley Davidson corporate. I just, you know. Uh, Harley, Harley stock, goes. would it surprise you to know that Harley stock is up today to $32.82? Uh, no, not, not it wouldn't just because the whole market was up. Uh, a little bit this morning uh, i'm driving so i haven't watched it a whole lot but uh, it's the whole market is up so it doesn't surprise me um there are lots of big large cap and small cap stocks that will if they're doing well they'll carry the rest of the market so um it doesn't surprise me do you feel that harley well, that's just not a, what's it what's it what's it trading at right now 32.87 currently okay What's this? 50, so it's 52-week low on there? Uh, let's take a look here. 52-week low, one year. Um, 50, the low was 31.90. Okay, so it's it's just trading above uh, its 52-week low. So. so it's really, it's just, it's, it's, that, is that, is that, a, that's like a sign of stability, is it not, to some degree? Uh, not well, the ability I mean, to produce, just the ability to to be stable. <laughs> uh, well, the entire market's pretty volatile right now, so I think there's so there's a lot of stuff trading here. It's 52 week low, so I mean, do I think Harley stock is stable? Yes. Um, I just don't know as far as I don't know what what Harley's going to do. They've got to attract a younger buyer, and I know. Um, I think with their, uh, what's their new adventure bike called? The Pan American. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that is a, an incredible bike. I, I would love to own one. And, and I I don't know much about it other than um, sitting on it, seeing it. I have not ridden one yet. But if, I'm just going to say if Michael Beeland gets on a bike and rides it all over the country and says it's a good bike, I'm going to go with it's probably a good bike. You're going to have to give me about 30 seconds to get out and take a leap. So. Okay. To be fair, I didn't tell him that we were going to podcast. I just called him. <laughs> um. <clears throat> I'll cut this out. It's no problem. Sorry, I couldn't hold anymore. No, you're fine. I was just, I was just laughing. I was just said, I said to be fair, I didn't tell you that we were going to. Uh, <laughs> I didn't tell you. I didn't tell you we were going to podcast. I just called you. <laughs> <laughs> These are the new. You know, Jeff G. Hold is the is the uh, the creator of the pop up show in Sturgis in Daytona. I'm uh, I'm the creator of the pop up podcast. I think that's what I'll call this one. This would just be. This would just be a pop-up. Yeah, I mean, I probably sound like a fool because I'm trying to.
trying to follow directions and and podcasts and uh, no, I it, not at all. I okay. just I wanted to try to I wanted to try to get, uh, get, get getting some... getting back to what I was saying about the the bikes. I mean, I I think Harley has. Uh, I think they might be on the right path, maybe. I think, but I think with the if they're decreasing new model production, it's going to it's going to increase. It's going to increase the price of new bikes, which, you know, it could be like I don't I can remember back in the two thousands, early two thousands when you couldn't walk into a dealership, and, and buy anything. I mean, you had to get on a list, and if something came in. Uh, and your name was on it, you were lucky enough to buy it. Um, well, we talk about that. That that subject has come up uh, multiple times on the podcast where we talk about anybody, anytime I'm talking to somebody who's been around uh, what we do for any substantive amount of time, you know, a couple decades or pre, they, they predate, you know, uh, you and I getting involved in, in the industry as uh, from a professional uh, in a professional capacity, I asked them about that. I mean, do you remember when you were considered when it, you considered it lucky that you won the lottery that you could go buy one? You didn't get to pick what color you wanted. You know, you get to pick the model, maybe. You know, I thought it was a good bit. What I'm getting at that I have never said before is I happen to feel that. Harley Davidson should stop trying to put a garage, put a, put a motorcycle in every garage, let Honda do that. And what they need to start doing is building less motorcycles for a higher profit, allow them to control more of the energy that's put into developing product at a little bit slower pace, developing product that can be built here on our shores, developing, uh, developing, I'm telling you what what I would what I would want to have happen. I, I know that it's not going to okay. happen, okay. but what I'm saying okay. is is this is what I truly want, and this is it's not I'm not being selfish. I would like for it. I don't want it to be like a you know um a, you know a hand built motorcycle that is they will only build this many. I mean I personally feel like there should only be a certain number of things planned on the front end of it. And then that's how many we build. And then, you know, when changeover occurs, we implement those changes. But I don't think it should be offered in 15 colors. I don't think it should be offered in 15 different configurations. I think it should be, we have a road glide, a street glide standard, a road glide special, a street glide special, you know, a road king, period. Don't, you, you don't, don't need to have two different all those colors and, yeah. and all the options. It's, it's just a just another jab at the aftermarket industry trying to take trying to take away a customer's want to, to buy a bike and then go take take it and have stuff done to it yeah and or but here's the thing a, is there was a point a in time where buy. i think that the, they would do better in the parts if you look at it from a profit standpoint you used to own a dealership if you sold a white motorcycle okay just think about this for a second guy comes in buys a white street glide with no options then you walk him over and introduce him to parts. And while he's in parts, he buys an air cleaner, grips, foot pegs, exhaust, right? And then you walk him over to service. He pays them to put that on. And while he's in service, they upsell him to a big bore kit and a dyno tune 
when the customer leaves, you've made money on every, and then you walk them back out and introduce them to Alicia that works in, uh, in soft goods. And she sells them Harley boots, Harley shoes, Harley hat, Harley gloves, Harley jeans, Harley's t-shirt gives him a free Harley t-shirt. He gets to pick whatever one he wants from this wall that has our name on the back of it. Fuck man. What's wrong with that transaction? There's nothing wrong with that transaction. It's a perfect transaction. And it's one that God, if I could bend the ear of the CEO and let him know what it's like to go buy a fucking Harley Davidson and what it means, what it used, it used to mean something. It means nothing now. How many Harleys have you had? Well, I think you've owned 15 or 20, not including the ones you had at your dealership. I'm talking about just the ones that you've either bought the flip, rode a little bit, fixed up, bop, 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 whatever. I probably had right. 10 to 15. Well, I think too that, that Harley needs to, to, Harley needs to get in touch with the aftermarket and the aftermarket dealerships because Harley won't work on a lot of stuff. I mean, the, the dealership here, if it's over 10 years old, they won't even they won't touch it yeah but but even the relationship with the dealers like being there's there's two other aftermarket dealerships here that have i mean and then when i was in business that we all tried to build a relationship with the local harley dealership to where let's listen we are going to have a customer base that won't walk into your store they don't want to be in your store they don't they don't like the corporate atmosphere they're old school guys or and i hate to use the word old school but uh, guys like my dad and, and even guys my age that don't want to go into a Harley dealership that I tried to establish a, re a relationship to be able to buy parts from the Harley dealership to install on bikes that they don't want to work on anyway. Yeah, and then Harley so, won't let them sell them to you. Harley dictates to them well, who they can Harley, sell to. They, pull, they pulled the plug. They pulled the plug on that. Yeah. And um, they 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 pulled the plug to our where I couldn't buy anything. Yeah. So it was like you can buy okay, you can buy it at full retail or you can't buy it. And I'm like, okay, so you'd rather me buy the part from drag. And I'm like, so is ten percent or fifteen percent profit, you know, better than zero percent? And according to Harley, they're like, Well, we'd rather make zero money off of you versus making 15% off of you and ensuring that Harley parts are out here on, on everybody's bikes. Yes. They would rather me buy a Chinese part from drag than they would discount any of their parts so that they can have those parts on their motorcycles. And it, it, I, that whole, that whole business model baffles me. I mean, I, it's ridiculous, dude. 10% 10, 10 of something is better than 0% of anything. I well, mean, when I worked at the dealership, we, we sold parts to every other Ford store in the area. And every other Ford store sold parts to us. You know what I mean? Like there was a truck that drove around from Jack Demmer Ford that went to all the other Ford stores in the, in the area and sold them parts and picked up parts that we bought from them. <laughs> you know? Harley Harley is completely missing out on a whole job. Or, huh? Well, they, they are. I mean, there's like I say, there's three aftermarket shops right now in Abilene. That if they were just, if they were just have a relationship with these these companies or these shops, they could sell them thousands of dollars in parts a week. I mean, they it got to where the dealership here wouldn't even sell me oil. They're like, I know, can't sell you Harley oil. I'm like, why? They well, we can sell you, we can sell you three to four quarts. I'm like, used to build. I could go in and buy, I could go buy a pallet of Harley 2050. Um, and then they're like, no. 
if 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 we sell it to you, they're going to buy it from you. And if we don't sell it to you, they're, they're going to come buy it from us. I'm like, no, they're not. They're not going to come buy it from you. They're going to let me sell them something else, you know. So then I start pushing a different brand of oil. Well, then if somebody decides they like, I'm just going to use Lucas because I like Lucas. Or say Redline, yeah. I like Redline. Yeah, whatever. Then, then you get that customer turned onto that product, right? Right. So then it takes them. It takes that. It takes that customer out of Harley Davidson's uh, as a customer as far as buying the oil. Whether he's buying the oil from me or from Harley, Harley's still profiting if they sell me the oil. Yeah. But they got they got so greedy that if if they couldn't sell it over their counter, they would rather not have it in the marketplace. Well, and that makes no sense to me. From a as a as a, I mean. I would call myself a business person, but I mean, this doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, if, if you can make $2,500 a month selling parts to three aftermarket shops that probably weren't going to step foot in your business anyway, why not do it? I mean, you know, and, and like right now, even the, the aftermarket shops, if they want to go in and pay full retail, they have to pay full retail as a, as Cody Childress not as oh yeah cody children's can buy oil but you know they were they were they started with the limit of how many oil how much you couldn't buy a quart or a case of quartz well i'm like i don't want any of it then you know it's just they're they're stepping over dollars pick up and i don't think it's greedy i think it's hear me out on this i think it's a complete disconnect of the market and the people who are the end user it's it's complete it, it has to be Nobody that because I'm telling you, if they were greedy, they would understand and they would sell it. And I don't think they're being greedy. I think they're being ignorant. I think they're literally well, you're right. devoid of any concept of. I mean, I feel like nobody in there. I feel like there's such an opportunity for somebody to go into Ford or into uh, Harley Davidson and go to, you know, someone like me that owns a shop and go. Listen, I spend six. I spend uh, probably two fifty a year at Drag Specialties. That's money, and I'm just one shop. And I think they said there, I can't remember, someone just told me recently how many shops there were in the United States. I was surprised, too, to hear that there was, that the number was not what I thought it was going to be. But let's say there's a thousand shops. That's two, two and a half million, two and a half million dollars? No, that's not even more than that. It's a thousand times, that's fucking $25 million in fucking parts. That you could that you could have a you could have a slice of that pie, is what I'm saying. If my cost of goods sold is two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and I'm a I'm I'm a nobody, I'm a tiny shop. Then look at guys that that spend three and four times what I spend because they're out there. There's guys that spend well, a third less than what I spend. Let Let's say, guy, you want a Harley. Oh, what's a good? Gotta think about good a good part that you could buy that any part that you could buy that you go to another, you know, I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to put it into the right, the right words, but I guess it's just keeping their parts in the marketplace. I mean, if I could buy Harley parts to put on bikes that I was working on versus having to order them through drag, which I don't get me wrong. I like drag. I'm a drag fan, but yeah, if I could go, if I could go to the dealership, order the part, put it on, that customer goes to Sturgis, has trouble in Sturgis for some odd reason, needs another part, 
Well, then he could go to the dealership and maybe get the part. Then they're selling another part. They're versus if we put a drag specialist part on the bike, then he goes somewhere else and he has a breakdown to replace that part. If he does, if he wants to put the same part back on there, then he's going to go to an aftermarket shop. So not only do they take the customer out of the marketplace locally, they'll probably take them out of the marketplace somewhere else as well. I mean, and I, that's I don't I didn't put that into a, a probably didn't say that right, but I know what you mean that makes sense. I know I know I know exactly. I feel like they're taking, you know, but even even recently when I've tried to go over there and buy a part. The guy that I deal with, who's a fantastic, fantastic individual, he's like, listen, I, I can't sell it to you under your business name. I'm like, why? He's like, well, uh, we only have two of those. I'm like, okay. He goes, I can sell it to you at full retail under your name, but I can't sell it to you at any price under your business name. I'm like, well, I, that doesn't make any sense to me. He goes, well, I, because you're a, you're, you're a competition. I'm like, but I'm not. I mean, no. the bike that I'm working on. Not at all. He's never coming. He's not coming here. I mean, and I think that's where Harley separated themselves. And I think maybe slowly they're starting to see, maybe they're starting to have build some relationships with some aftermarket builders. I don't or, think they are at all. Uh, I think they're. I think well, they're they doing should. the same I, thing I they think, used to do. I think they're doing the same thing. They, yeah. you know, they abscond with people's ideas more often times than not. It's been proven time and time again. Yeah. You know, Harley's got great engineers. Harley has some fantastic engineers, obviously, I mean, but I don't know. I don't know that they have any, as far as design, I don't know that they're really taking, I don't think they have the best designers in the world. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I, I think they've been pinching people's stuff for a long time. And, and I, you know, I, I mean, I think for a long time that the, it, maybe there's a, a method to that or to the madness of let's build something that's okay. Because if we build it perfect, we're not going to need anybody to come back to do anything to it. Well, I think so, that's what they were trying uh, to do over the last five or six years. I mean, I don't know how long this guy's been at the helm, this new CEO. Uh, but I I think they're trying to be the BMW of the United States. You know, build a motorcycle that so, is basically... So well, so I'm, I'm just saying. I think that's what they're trying to do. I think that's what the Pan American was. I think that's what the new, the new, you know, R D R D D S or some. There's something we were talking the other day, and some one of my texts said, "Oh, I think that's got the new R S D S system or something." I was like, "Ah, uh, I need to know what that is because I don't." And it had to do with the security system and the and how the the well, radio had just tied the, into that. There are some shops in the country that that have the ability to go in and and do the. Uh, tuning and 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 understand everything about the tuning of those bikes. I mean, sure. I think Michael Beeland stays way out in front of of that. I know the the Dino guys that that are into tuning the bikes, and so many of those people know so much about that. And I'm sure there are some dealerships that do have the knowledge and the ability. But it's also it's also hey, we're going to do stage one, so we're going to put this map in it. We're going to do stage two, we're going to put this map in it. Yeah. Stage three, we're going to do this. Yeah. I mean. There's not anybody really working in a dealership for 13 to 14, $15 an hour that really gives a shit about tuning your motorcycle and, and making it, 
uh, the best experience for you? I mean, no, I think there are some, if you, if you follow, there's some Harley dealers though, like moonshine, Harley Davidson is always posting the bikes they build. There's space coast, uh, down in space coast Speedworks down in, uh, is it Fort, Fort Lauderdale down here? There's, you know, there's, uh, yeah, there's Quaid, Quaid Harley Davidson that does, does some stuff. There was, uh, who was the, what was the name of the dealer in Arizona that for the longest time was doing lots of stuff with, uh, Motorwitch and Jeff Holt. Um, man, I can't remember the name of it, but that, you know, I think those dealerships are outliers. I think that most dealerships are not that case. I think the, the exception is the guys that like you're talking about, you know, that know how to make power and then you know but at the same time there's there's a lot of there's a lot of aftermarket shops that are starting to cycle out to you know they're they're aging out of relevancy and aging out of uh they're aging out of what you know what kind of services they offer this is i mean the technology is moving so fast like you know it was a point in time where if you had a code reader you had the latest and greatest on on tech if then when you had a power commander and then the you know the daytona twin tech tuner or now i mean i have a techno research i have a power vision i have a vance and hines i have we've got all kinds of technology back there that we're constantly paying to, to upgrade constantly you know and i don't sometimes we'll go for a longest period of time where we don't use something because seems things seem to break in groups if you know what i mean like in threes like we'll have three bikes come in with bad charging systems. We'll have three bikes come in with bad throttle bodies. We'll have three bikes come in with bad fuel systems. It just seems to work that way that we do all the firmware updates. We get up to speed on the techno research and then we got to pay for the next, the next, the next group of, of information to have that thing updated. It's like an iPhone. You know what I mean? So does, does Ford, does Ford software or do aftermarket automotive shops have the ability to, to get into Ford software? Or- Absolutely. And here's why, because the Federal Trade Commission gets involved. So maybe with the Federal Trade Commission getting involved with this deal with Harley, yeah, I I mean, I think they need to make make that software uh, available to aftermarket shops. Uh, What's the name of it? I I can't. What are you talking about? What do you mean? Harley's. Harley's. uh, Oh, that they have. What are they? Digital technician. Oh, the, well, they don't even, yeah. They, so their new digital technician, you don't have to make that. I don't think you have to make that available. Um, I don't think you have to make that tool available. But you used to be able to buy, you know, if you if you knew somebody at the dealership, you could get them to sell you a scanalyzer. I had one. And then that became obsolete. And the new digital technician, you have to log in all the time. But um, Techno Research does a really good job of, breaking all that software out and and figuring figuring that out but if you look at the there's four there's basically four enforcement actions from the federal trade commission um the one of them is the first one is prohibit further violations okay so if they if they do it again it's forty six thousand five hundred and seventeen dollars per violation in federal court okay the federal trade commission can seek civil penalties not the owner of the bike the you know, and it said, so if you cannot tell consumers that their warranty will be void if they use third party services or parts and, or that they should use only branded parts or authorized service providers. That is the biggest thing that has ever happened in the aftermarket in my career. Um, 
you have to recognize a consumer's right to repair. Uh, companies will be required to add specific language to their warranties that taking your product to be serviced by a repair shop that is not affiliated with Harley Davidson will not void this warranty. Also, using third-party parts will not void this warranty. That is, dude, that is massive. That is massive because then, then you have, you get into an area, uh, the burden of proof. And the burden of proof right there with that action, the burden of proof automatically lies with Harley Davidson. They have to prove that's been the problem all along. And I have five customers that in, in since 2003 that have had their, their factory warranty invalidated. All five of them have had their uh, factory warranty reinstated because I printed out the Magnuson Moss Act, highlighted the provisions in the Magnuson Moss Act that uh, were, were clearly stated that they had the right to do uh, X, Y, and Z. And they've all gotten their warranties put back together or put back in place. It's been over five years since I've had to deal with this. The next provision is um, come clean with consumers. Both companies must send and produce notices informing consumers that their warranties will remain in effect, even if they buy aftermarket parts or patronize independent repairs. That's what you were talking about. That's what you were saying earlier, like where if you don't use this oil, you don't use this. This is huge. No, I mean, I, I hope I hope they hold their feet to the fire. I mean, I, I really do. And here's the I last mean, piece. There's some ambiguity in here, but hear, hear me out on this. It alert dealers to compete fairly. So this becomes the um, this becomes the manufacturer's responsibility to let dealers know that there's a fair and competitive marketplace, which is what you were talking about earlier too. That both both Westinghouse and Harley are being required to direct authorized dealers to remove deceptive display materials requires them to train and monitor employees and not promote branded parts in dealers over third parties. Dude, that's where the federal trade, that's where the fair trade rules come into effect, where you can't say, oh, uh, you should use a Harley part, not an SNS part. You should use a Harley exhaust, not a set of SNS or Vance and Heinz mufflers. Do you get what I'm saying? Right. This is, this is a, this is a giant and and the commission voted unanimously that right now this so the so there's there's public comment so here's the deal this is what i'm asking everybody to do if you listen to this podcast i want you to go to the cycle stop usa page i'll put this on the garage built um feed too so <clears throat> i'm not a big government government fan but uh there's some there is a line where you're asked to go to. Uh, you're asked to report any fraud if you've if you've been involved in this situation where you've been told this, and everybody has. You just have to have a specific um, a specific case in mind. But we have thirty days. We have thirty days as uh, as uh, constituents of the U.S. government and um, as consumers to to levy our public comments and, 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 and make our, make what we, we feel known. So you're going to go to the consumer response center. You're going to call 877-382-4357 and you can call and that's a contact direct for consumers. Um, you don't have to be articulate, just be specific of what happened or go to reportfraud.ftc.gov. And I'll put this up on, on the garage built podcast, uh, page, um, and I'll I'll keep I'll keep re reposting this, but this is the this is actually a, a 
this is a good thing. This is a very good thing. This is this creates a fair and level marketplace. This is a uh, this is what our government the kind of thing that our government is supposed to do, <laughs> right? And right. You, you can also follow the FTC on social media, and, and that's important too. So, but you know, I wanted to talk to you specifically about this, Cody, because you and I have had this conversation, and and the the entirety of our friendship has been. Uh, founded in your relationship with the bike builds and the customers and the clientele and the industry from your point of view and mine uh, from mine. And we find ourselves more oftentimes than not in these conversations about what we think is going to happen. And you and I, you know, pontificate and talk about what we think is going to happen and what we've been through and try to come up with something. This is, this is a very important thing that is happening in our industry. And this is, this is the time for everybody, everybody to speak up. This is where you're, you're going to have your voice heard. And, and I know that sounds silly, but listen, if you own an, an aftermarket shop like I do, you know, I'm calling I'm, I'm this is an all call for the guys, the guys up at Burnout Cycles in Georgia, Kevin Baxter at Pro Twin, uh, Chris and Rebecca and Becca Rang at Rang Cycle, uh, Jeff G. Holt. I probably can't comment this too much because he kind of he's on the marketing side of things, but he you know, but he he has a valid opinion. And listen, at Sturgis. Uh, the day of the FXR show, the Garage Built podcast is going to host a, an industry panel podcast at the Big Engine Bar. We're just waiting to find out the stage time where we're going to be up there. But we're going to have myself, Cody. Um, we're going to try to get Jeff G up there. We're going to try to get some of these industry guys up there so that we can talk about this. And this is a perfect time for this to happen. This is a perfect time for this conversation to occur. And we're even going to have some dudes on there that are that are con that are heavy consumers and very. Um, well-read consumers and very engaged consumers like Aaron Coit. Uh, if, if he can make it to Sturgis, I talked to him about being on this panel too because he spends a lot of money, supports a lot of aftermarket stuff, and he's been through a lot of parts and a lot of bikes, and I think his, his opinion's very, very valid. So I'm looking forward to doing that. That'll be fun. Yeah, so. this is going to be good. So that'll be the, the I'm first I'm excited Sunday. about Sturgis. So. I'm glad that you are, man. I'm really right. looking forward to it. It was not on my radar, and then I just decided to put it on my radar. So. <laughs> yeah, which, um, which, yeah, I, I'm glad that you're going. I wish I would have known in May. <laughs> now, uh, you know me. Yeah, so. typical, typical. I got, I got a lot of shit going on right now, and I'm just trying to. I mean, not anything bad. I'm, I'm no, I know. On all means, just, just, no, just, you're you're trying to make some you know, some very big moves for your family and that, and so. So you've got a weekend ahead of you here. I'm going to uh, I'm going to start. I'm going to I'm going to cut us cut us loose here. I appreciate that uh, you could you could do this. And uh, as always, I yeah, love man, you, buddy. Sorry. I love you. I love you too. So I'm sure my my uh, nomenclature and my no, you're fine. Words yeah. is not as, as good as they need to be. But uh, I look forward to doing it again. I'm, I'm hoping we can podcast on the road to yeah, on the road to Sturgis.